Uh, my name is Paul. I'm an intern at the front porch. I'm Emily, Paul's roommate, an <laughs> office mate, <laughs> also an intern. What are what are what are we doing on Saturdays this quarter? So winter quarter, the topic of our Saturday night worship gatherings is the politics of the divine, and on the eleventh, our first of the quarter, we kind of introed the topic and the discussion and we talked about a group of people known as the Israelites whose history is very marked by oppression and struggles and how today the Bible and the Jewish Bible specifically can serve as a critique of positions of power and those who are in power. So we talked a little about politics, talked a little about the divine. Um, And why would we bother talking about any of this? Why, uh, what's, what's the deal with politics that people should be, I don't know, paying attention to some story that's 2,000 years old? Well, their ideas are around still, which is saying something for a group that has been very oppressed. That yeah. these ideas have survived for that long and... <laughs> totally. We're listening to a lot of other people's opinions, so. What do you think it means to Why be? not listen to one that has survived for so long? And critiques Um, and so politics is always a word for me that has, and I'm sure for you, as for most people, that has so much that comes along with it when we say that word. Um, it's interesting. We just celebrated Christmas and then a few weeks before that, Thanksgiving. Uh, and both of those meals we had at my in-laws house and, uh, we had some family members, probably 10, 12 family, not a lot, but 10 or 12 family members all seated around the table. And Landon, our middle child, um, came and sat down and at the table, uh, both of those meals. And he's like, all right, it's a holiday meal. We're going to talk about politics. Um, and he said that, as a, obviously, as a joke. Um, but it's this thing that, that, is, that can be so divisive among people. 
among families, among communities, among cities, among countries, the world. Um, it is a very divisive thing. Um, but it's not a bad, politics aren't bad. Um, and yet, I think so much of our talk of them more recently uh, has been pretty negative. So um, what I want you to do real briefly is I want you to turn to the person next to you, um, one or two people next to you, and when you hear politics, what reaction do you have? What comes to mind for you when either you hear someone um, in something you're reading or on a screen in front of you or a professor or a friend or a family member, when that word is said, what does that bring up for you, positively or negatively? So the first question he posed to the group was, when you hear the word politics or you hear politics being mm -hmm. discussed, what comes up for you? So what comes to mind? Um, I talked about feeling overwhelmed with all of the information that is available, um, especially around events that happen, the amount of interpretations and even the amount of reporting that is done on each specific thing is so such a huge volume that it's hard to parcel out what is true and what is not true. And then I think it becomes very convoluted with where you get your news, where you get your information from. And things are happening all the time and every day. So yeah. I think at times it feels very like everything is everything at once. Everything is happening everything at once. Yeah. Yeah. I think I said something about polling numbers. You did. I follow them <laughs> too much. <laughs> I think that someone's going to walk away and be offended. Mm. Like, or hurt or upset. People are generally pretty sure of what they believe and like not very willing to entertain the possibility of like being wrong. I think it's something, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but politics is something that is central to everything that we do and we're going to get to that in a few moments um, but we are going to back up a little bit um, before we get to that and I'm going to talk to you about because um, again we're uh, the name of this series is the politics of the divine um, and um, we are going to be using this book uh, the Bible to look at what this book might have to say about politics. Um, and so because of that, I want to do a little bit of background on this book and how we got to where we're at today and how we understand this book. Um, so the Bible was written, this book, um, was written by uh, an ancient tribe of people known as uh, the Israelites, um, known as the Jewish people today. So. The question then that we probably should have is who were these people? Who were the Israelites? What was it like to be an Israelite? Um, both um, throughout this uh, time period that the majority of the, most, most of it was written, the Old Testament, and then as well as the New Testament. What was it like to be um, a, pers a person of this Israelite tradition? And so the Israelites were a group of people 
And for some of you, you already know this, um, and that's okay, because for me, when I hear these things, it's always good to be reminded. They were a people who were oppressed um, by, um, by whatever power, by whatever uh, su military superpower of the day that was in control. And so as you begin the book, the, they're under the oppression of who? Who's the, does anyone know who the first group of people who kind of oppressed the Israelites were in the story? Egyptians. The Egyptians. And so the Egyptians were ruling. There was the Pharaoh. They were great. They were mighty. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They had both um, political, military, um, across the board. They were in control. And so uh, the Israelites in the story are oppressed by the Egyptians. Then they're oppressed by the Persians. Then they're oppressed by the Babylonians. Then they are oppressed by the Assyrians. Then they're oppressed by the Greeks. And then they're oppressed by, who's kind of the, at the end, the most recent, you could say, people to oppress them in the story? The Romans. And so period after period after period after period, this small group of people, the Israelites were a very small group of people. Uh, this, the, the group of people who wrote this book were oppressed time and time and time and time again. And they were sick and tired of it. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of having the, the people who were in power with all the money, all the wealth, all the military might oppressing them and using their power to, to, to cause this group of people to experience extreme hardship. Um, when it came to living life. They wanted freedom. They had suffered. They were angry. Um, and you can read all of this and read all of their anger and all of their frustration. Um, and it's this question that is throughout the entire Old Testament, I would say, is how will your... <clears throat> the Israelites both ask this question of the people in power as well as of themselves. How will your power be used? The power that you have how will you use that within this world? Will you use it to manipulate, to instill fear, to overpower, to only help yourself? And that's much of what the Israelites had experienced through all of these different um, military superpowers. Or will you use it to help other people? Will you use it to help the orphan, the widow, and the refugee? And those three... Uh, Three people are named over and over and over again throughout this ancient text as a standard by which to be measured. The Israelites measured themselves against this standard as well as other people. Are the widow, the orphan, and the refugee in your midst being taken care of? And if they're not, then you are failing. And this was the standard by which they measured themselves. They believed that they were different than all of these other groups. Different than the Egyptians, different than the Persians, different than the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. Because they believed at their core they were called to be something completely different from all the other groups of people that were formed around them. All the different tribes. So I want to take you to Genesis um, 12. Um, and this is so much at the core of the Israelites' uh, identity, the, these few verses right here. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. 
I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And at their core, as a people group, they were to be a group of people that through them and through the way that they structured their lives and their families and the way that they cared for other people, it wasn't just going to be about their people group receiving blessing. It was going to be about all other people groups receiving blessing as well. And that was vastly different from all the other groups of people that had oppressed them. That was different than the Egyptians. That was different than the Persians and the Assyrians. They were all about what? They were about establishing as much wealth and growth and prosperity for their people group as possible. It didn't matter as much about the other people groups. They wanted all those other people groups to assimilate, or if they wouldn't assimilate, they would destroy them um, through violent means. And this was how the world was for the Israelites. So, I'm going to take you to a story in, uh, actually I won't get there yet, in 1 Kings. So in 1 Kings we read about uh, the story of this guy named Solomon. What do you guys know about Solomon? What have you heard about Solomon? Anything that you've heard, of, heard about him, shout it out. Lots of wives. Okay, lots of wives. <laughs> Something to do with the temple? Yes. So Solomon is responsible for building the first temple. Um, which, if you read about in this story, is one of the most magnificent buildings I've ever read about, um, just in terms of how they describe it. Um, the materials that were used, the um, ornateness of it, it was just uh, incredibly beautiful building. So you guys pretty much got it. He was incredibly wealthy. Um, he was incredibly wise. He loved to build things. Um, he built the first temple. Um, he built this giant palace for himself. Um, he was considered to be the most wise person um, in, according to this story. He was considered to be the most wise person on the earth at the time. He was considered to be the richest person on earth at the time. Uh, it was said that his wealth, it was said that all of the other kings and rulers at that time, their wealth combined wouldn't have equaled uh, King Solomon's wealth. So the guy had a lot of stuff. Um, for wives, we don't know if these numbers were more symbolic or not, but regardless, he probably had a lot of wives. The numbers that are given in the text are 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is kind of crazy. Um, according to the Quran, so not just within the Christian faith tradition, but the Muslim faith tradition as well, according to the Quran, he's a um, he's one of the major prophets. So he is <clears throat> highly regarded. Um, so again, he came from, remember, he came from this oppressed people group, right? This group of people that was supposed to be different from everyone else. And now all of a sudden he finds himself in a position of great wealth and great wisdom and great everything. He has, he has made it. Um, and the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings comes to visit him. There's a story of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit King Solomon. It's in 1 Kings 10. And she comes to him, and she, this is one of the things, she, sa she kind of says all these things about how wealthy he is and how wise he is, and then she says this, which is really interesting. Again, she's not from the tribe of Israel. 
But this is what she says to King Solomon. Bless the Lord your God, because he was pleased to place you on Israel's throne. Because the Lord loved Israel with an eternal love, the Lord made you king to uphold justice and righteousness. And it's real, I find it really interesting because that's what the people of Israel were to be about, right? Justice and righteousness, bringing about this blessing to all people. And the Queen of Sheba recognizes that and says to King Solomon, you are put in this place for a reason. Use your power, use your wealth for bringing about and upholding justice and righteousness here on this earth. But, any of you know the story, what does King Solomon use his power and wealth for? We've kind of already mentioned it, but what does he use all that wealth for? A lot of it. Development. Development, building things. And so he builds a temple because he believes that God should have a place where God resides. God shouldn't be this thing that is just kind of freely floating around wherever. God should be this thing that resides in one place. So we should build a building for this God. And so we, he builds this ornate temple. And then he builds a palace for himself that is just as equally ornate as the temple. And what do you think he uses to build those two structures? Slaves. This is in the text. You can read this story. He uses slave labor to build. And he, he, so, so get this. These are a group of people that had been oppressed and had been enslaved by the Egyptians and the Babylonians and all these other cultures, these people who were put in power. And now he finds himself in a place of power. And what does he do with his power? He acts in the exact same way that all the other kingdoms around him had been acting. He's acting no different. And then Solomon dies. Oh, I forgot to mention. Who's Solomon's parents? Anyone know? David. David. Solomon is the son of David. And his mom is Bathsheba. Um, I don't know if you guys all know that story, but um, he's the son of David and Bathsheba, the second son of David and Bathsheba. Um, so anyway, Solomon dies. And then ruler after ruler in Israel, because they continue to have some sort of significance when it comes to a little bit of power, and they continue to do the, go down the exact same path that Solomon had gone down. And then eventually, their kingdom falls apart. One of the reasons that I find this book and the <coughs> stories in this book so fascinating is because they are constantly critiquing People who find themselves in places of power. Who find themselves in places of power and wealth and influence. And con it, the book condemns them and then it challenges them to be better. But within the book, the other interesting thing is, those who find themselves in places of power seem to never be able to hear the critique. They're constantly critiqued in this book. Prophet after prophet after prophet critiques the, the group, their own, the Israelite prophets critique the, the, group of, the, group, the people group of Israel as a whole, and yet when they find themselves in power, they can never hear the critique, the critique and they keep going down the same path. So maybe now, we can understand why people who are a part of 
what is considered to be probably one of the most wealthy and most powerful military superpowers the world has ever seen that we are all a part of struggle to hear sometimes some of the major themes that exist within this book. And so that is why we are going to do this series on politics, this thing called the politics of the divine. Because I believe so often we fail to hear just as much as the Israelite people fail to hear that critique. So I want to ask another question. I want you to turn to the people next to you. Why do you think the wealthy and those in power tend to miss many of the major themes in the Bible? Why do you think the Israelites missed it? Why do you think King Solomon missed it? And then you can jump all the way to today, to present day. People who follow Jesus, people who read this book, people who adhere to it and identify as Christians. Why do you think we tend to miss some of the major themes of what was really going on in this book when it came to how we care about people in the world around us and entering into it? I would say maybe because they have a fear of losing their wealth and power, so they need a way to compensate for that and show it. If the, a theme is something like, you know, take care of the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, I think people, you're around a lot of people with the same status as you. If you're not a widow and you're not an orphan and you're not a <coughs> refugee, if you're very far from those identities, you're unlikely to, like, connect with that sort of story and those sorts of struggles. And so the matter of using slave labor is not a concern because I don't know any I don't know any refugees. I just employ them. Oh, but I own them. It's not an issue that I don't know them. But if you're a refugee it's much, 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 much harder to say, oh well like the refugee doesn't matter. Or like, oh the widow doesn't matter. And you're a widow. I mean, I don't know much about being a widow these days. It's different than so why do you think the wealthy and those in power tend to miss many of the major themes of the Bible? Any, uh, any thoughts, Emily? Why, why might we miss it? I think we're very... Our power, which in a lot of ways is what we could use to help any oppressed people groups, is what clouds are view we're so distanced from the experiences of those people that either we don't care because we don't know or we think that helping or providing resources to someone else will then threaten our own access to those yeah so i think it's either a ignorance or it's a blatant just disregard disregard yeah, there's something in our staff book, Tanahasi Coates, mm-hmm. Between the World and Me. He focuses a lot of his discussion of oppression and like histories of, I don't know, just problematic relations between a group that's saying we're the best and we're killing it and we have this dream that anybody can be a part of. Mm-hmm. And then the group that the dream is then enabled by through their labor and mm-hmm. exploitation. And all of the or a lot of the discussion that he talks about, like what is it like to be the person who's um, being exploited creates the dream in terms of bodies, which I think is something that's like, you just, if you're just a couple of white people sitting around in pretty affluent town on the mm-hmm. skirts of 
one of the most affluent and homogenous campuses in California, your body is not the body that's at risk. Your body is right. not the body that's being exploited. Your body is not the child or the grandchild or the great grandchild of someone who has, you know, been brought up in redlining and mm-hmm. all sorts of systems that keep people from their place. And so then oppression is no longer this sort of, oh, it's out there and it's abstract and it's happening to somebody, but I'm not really sure quite how. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it's bodies and they're on the line and they're encountering these things like in every day. In the same way, an old story written by a bunch of dudes a couple thousand years ago, assembled over time. These are stories of people who are figuring out a new politic in the midst of 600 years of oppression. Mm -hmm. That is not a context to which white people from slow can sort out very well. Yeah. I think something else is power is easy to attribute to people in government or people that are in the public eye as like, oh, they're the ones with power. And I think we do a lot of distancing. Like we're okay saying we have privilege, but we're not that okay with claiming power hmm. over other people or over other bodies or, or saying that that's where our privilege comes from. Yeah. Um, and kind of like opting out of that role because we don't have the most power or... I think even in circles of mine saying, oh, well, we don't have as much power because we're women. It's Hmm. like, yeah, but we're white women Hmm. who are at least middle class, college educated. That is a lot of power. And that there are all of these different facets of power that you can hold and not hold at the same time. And that's not something you get to opt out of because the whole system just gives you the privilege you don't get to not take it Mm -hmm. in the same way i think with religion that buys you a lot of power as well you get this support system and you get these people that are around you that hold your same beliefs and that is a community you get to be a part of but if that community doesn't acknowledge how its growth also was powered by the taking of bodies and war and power struggles, then you might need to look a little closer at the book that you're following and see how it was taken and then used to reach the place of power that it's in. Totally. Yeah. You hand the story of an oppressor to an empire. They just, you know, there's some mistranslation. You Mm -hmm. don't know what to do with. Or they find some oppressor that they can put on themselves and say, well, I'm oppressed in this way. So that fits. Yeah. And then you don't have to acknowledge where you play the role of the oppressor. Yeah. It's really interesting. The there's the number one, the group that believes they're oppressed more than anyone in the United States is, is Protestants. (laughs) Why? (laughs) So, Hmm. yeah. Okay. It's interesting when, how this book is read and understood and translated um, and the theology that comes out of this book based off of what 
is going on in the world around you. So if this book is, if theology, if the theology of this book and what we take out of this book is done in a very wealthy uh, and people in power are the ones doing this, that theology and what's understood in this book is going to look vastly different if the theology is done by a group of people who are oppressed and suffering and don't, have enough, don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Um, and that's really interesting because the majority of the theology that we as Americans tend to adhere to was done by um, white, wealthy, European males. Um, and that's just, that's the majority of our theology today, that the majority of um, American Christians adhere to, that's who the theology was done by. Now that's not to say that there's not a lot of, and that's not to say that their theology is bad. I want to be careful when I say that. Um, that's, there's some great theology that I love that are done by those people. But that's also to say maybe we should also look for theology done by different types of people in different parts of the world at different times and different genders and not all the same. So thanks for that. Um, I didn't have an answer to that question. Um, I mean, I have my own ideas, but that wasn't the point of me sharing. I just wanted to throw that question out there. I'm going to read something to you out of a book that I really enjoy. Um, this book was written a few years ago. I really recommend it. Uh, it's called What is the Bible? Um, by a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Uh, and it really, I don't know. That's all I'll say. I just really enjoyed it. But uh, I wanted to read to you um, this little section that he says that pertains to this. He says this. This is... Uh, Rob Bell speaking. I was born in America, raised in America, and I've lived my whole life in America. And I'm grateful for that. Freedom, rights, the chance to pursue your dreams, great. But America isn't just a nation. It's also a system. A system shaped by capitalism and democracy and corporations and convictions and a particular spirit that from the birth of America has been whispering in her ear, more. More land, more expansion, more wealth, more power, more influence, more customers, more square footage, more products for less money, more up and to the right. When in doubt, more, because more is better. But more is not always better. More is not always good. Sometimes more is bad, destructive, wrong, and sometimes it's downright evil. Um, we have grown up in systems. Systems, some of which we are aware of, some of which were just named there, like democracy, um, capitalism. Uh, there's other systems that we have grown up in, but there's a lot of systems that we have grown up. Some of which we are aware of, some of which we probably aren't even aware of. Some maybe we're aware of, but we aren't even aware how those systems affect how we live our lives. So what are some of the systems? Do you get what I'm saying when I say systems? Like democracy, capitalism, there's a lot of others. Um, what are some of the systems that we have grown up in? Education, prison systems, social media, system. tiger culture, money, democrats and politics, yeah. class system, the Patriarchy. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Temperature yeah. controlled systems. 
HVAC. It's not been around a long time. We don't talk about it. That is good, Paul. We take it for granted. Thank you. <laughs> and we're not, sorry, I want to say one more thing before you go back. You said, I mean, we're not saying that these systems are bad or good. We're just, we're just naming them. So sometimes, I don't know about you, when I look at the world, sometimes I think, well, what's the point of caring? Um, I know that sounds bad. But sometimes, honestly, I'm like, well, what can I, I think this is a common thing. When it comes to politics, well, like, what can I do? How can I make a difference? Uh, I see things like what happened in, this, in our world between us and Iran over the course of the past few weeks, past couple months, as it's been unfolding. And it's like, well, like, what in the world? Like, how could I ever, first of all, why? Like, why these two countries? Why have we not gotten along for so long? It's, I mean, it's not just recent. It's been this long history of us not getting along. Um, why? The countries in, in, in the Middle East themselves, why, why do they not get along? And then why we enter into it? And why it, it just, like, I look at it and I just get so frustrated very quickly. I don't know about you, but I read article after article. And I'm really big on reading the articles because I want to know what's happening. But at the same time, it just makes me so frustrated um, to read it. Um, I look at other things, like poverty, both within, on a global scale as well as a more, uh, more national scale, the poverty that exists within our own country. And again, it's like, well, what can I do? Can I really make a difference? I look at the homeless situation um, here within SLO, here within California, or, I mean, I was just in San Francisco where homelessness is like crazy. Um, and it's like, can I even do anything? Or, or should I just go about my life and pretend like it doesn't exist? Um, other things, whether it be the global climate uh, issue, whether it be partisan politics, whether it be the socioeconomic gap, sometimes, and again, I don't know about you, but I just want to give up or check out. And sometimes I do, if I'm honest with myself. I just give up or check out when it comes to some of these bigger issues because I think about it, I get really frustrated, and then I'm like, oh, I can't do anything, but you know what? I can just go about my life, and my life's not that bad. Which is a really privileged place to come from. It's very privileged of me to be able to say that I can just check out of those things. Um, and it's taken me a while in my life to come to a place to admit to that. That it's... That, to check out of politics, to say, I'm not going to get into politics. I, I'm not going to care about politics. That's a very privileged thing to say. Because the people on the other end of that, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, they don't get a check out of those discussions. They can't. The people who are oppressed by the people in power, and they're on the front lines of those discussions. That, that's their everyday world. But for someone like me, like, I'm not dealing with that kind of stuff, so it's really easy for me to take a back seat or to just turn my back completely and say, you know what, I'm just going to go about my day and not care about this. But the thing is, this book, this tradition that I am a part of, the Christian faith tradition, insists that, that I get involved, that this stuff does matter. And that it matters profoundly. And how I respond to the world around me and the people around me and the city that I live in and the, 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 the state and the country and the world that I live in, that it matters how I respond. And that I should be entering into the conversation on a regular basis. That what I believe about people and the world in which I live 
what I think about our lives and how we fit into the world, what we think about others and how we treat them, that it all matters profoundly. And in this book, I think that we find beautiful insights into these ideas when we ask questions of this book. And so that's what we're going to do this quarter, is we are going to ask questions of this book. We're going to ask, first of all, why did this ancient group of people, the Israelites, write down all these stories? Why did they write down these stories? Because if you think about it, it paints them in a really bad light. This story does not put the Israelites in a very good light, and yet they're the ones who wrote the story. It, it, put, it shows how much they failed time and time and time again and how much they don't get it. And it shows how, they, it shows how Solomon failed as a king. And yet they wrote that story down so that it would be preserved and that people would be talking about sitting in a room thousands, of year, thousands and thousands of years later reading it. So we're going to ask the question, why did they find it so important to write it down? Um, we're going to look at what was going on in the world at the time of the, when they wrote it to see how we might gain insight and how it might pertain to us today in the 21st century. So Jesus, real quick, and then we're going to close um, uh, the evening. Um, this is the, Jesus was born into this. So Jesus came out of this tradition. He was a Jewish person. He was a Jewish rabbi. And this was the tradition that he came out of. He was born into um, an oppressed people group who were being oppressed by the Rome. Um, I think the statistic is that the people of Jesus' day um, were being taxed 90% of their income. Uh, And they weren't making much to begin with. And 90% of their income was going to Rome so that Rome could build their great big structures and keep up their military might. And so Jesus was born into a very social, public, political situation. And when he came on the scene, he started talking. And people started listening. Because here was someone who had some new ideas. And so the first question that people had for Jesus, well, what's your plan? What are you going to do? And you know what they wanted? They wanted Solomon, in a sense. They wanted someone like Solomon. Someone who was all-powerful, all-mighty, all-knowing. And it's really interesting, I find it, that Jesus was also, one of the titles of Jesus is the son of David. And so he comes, and yet he presents a vastly different message from what Solomon was doing. And he he uses this language of the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is not for the elite, elite few. It is available to everyone, and it is here in your midst, and it is available to everyone. And then he goes out into the streets and the fields and people's homes, which are all, he goes out into all these public spheres. He doesn't go to the private sector. He goes out into all these public places, and he shares this message, a political message. The message message that Jesus presents is this revolution, revolutionary alternative way of thinking for a group of people to structure their life around. And so the first followers of Jesus were called followers of the way because it was a way. It was a different way of doing it, a way that was vastly different because, again, this was supposed to be a group of people who did it differently than all the other kingdoms. And so this was a way of being that was different from the way that Rome was doing it. And he calls it the kingdom of God. Why does he call it the kingdom of God? 
because the people of his day understood kingdoms all too well. They knew what kingdoms were like. And they knew how kingdoms operated. And they had experienced the harsh treatment of what a kingdom was like. And Jesus was saying, I know that you've experienced kingdom, and I know you've gotten kingdom from all these other people. I want to show you a different way of being a kingdom, a different way of structuring your life. And he calls it good news, a term that was a political term. The, word is, the, the Greek word is euangelion, which is a Greek word which was used by military powers of the day. Rome used it regularly. In fact, right before, uh, a year or so before Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus issued a euangelion. He issued good news to the people that their calendar would be changing and that Caesar Augustus's birthday would be the first day of the calendar year. And this was good news for the people. It's great news, huh? Change your calendars. Um, so this was a political term. And Jesus uses that term for his message because he had a political message for the people. That this wasn't going to be something that was individualistic. And so often within Christianity, especially Christianity today, and I think because of our place of power and wealth within the United States, um, the Christian message has been turned into this very individualistic thing. I don't think it was meant to be an individualistic thing. I think that, because if you read throughout the history of Christianity, um, that's one of the things I got to study in seminary, you will see that Christianity being this individualistic thing, when I say an individualistic thing, I mean that it's about you as a person individually coming to know Jesus as your Savior so that you can be saved so that one day when you die you will go to heaven. That's a very individualistic thing. It's about you and your salvation. In the, in the scope of Christianity as a whole, that is a very recent development. If you don't trust me, you can study Christianity all you want. Um, but that is a very recent development that came out of a, uh, Christianity within the United States. That's not to say that you and your quote-unquote salvation doesn't matter. It does, but it fits into a much larger picture. Because God was doing something much bigger. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it was something much more grand and something much more wide in scope than just a single individual and their salvation. Because God loves humanity. And God wants humanity and this world to flourish and it wasn't flourishing, and it still isn't flourishing, but God has this desire that it does flourish. God wants to transform the world. And so Jesus invites people into this process of transformation and calls it the kingdom of God, but people keep missing it. And so it's why time and time again Jesus talks about people being blind or people being deaf to what he's saying. And why are they missing it? Because who is missing it? People who are in power. So the, the rich rule, the, the guy who comes to Jesus with all the money, completely misses it. Why? Because he's in a place of power with all of his wealth. The religious leaders of Jesus' day who are in a place of power, they miss it. Because within their system, their religious system, they were in a place of power, and they missed it. Jesus' message, message of good news was radically different than that of the good news of the empire. Their good news of the empire was peace through domination, Peace through redemptive violence. Peace through power. Peace through oppression. Peace through the elimination of enemies. And Jesus presents this new 
what you could call new framing story. And how does he do that? He teaches through examples and stories that stimulate people to think versus telling them what to think. And one of the primary ways that Jesus does this is to invite people to come around him, to invite him to the table, to invite him to share meals with him and sit down and talk and have discussions, to share meals with people in homes on the fringe of the empire where people were being oppressed by that very same empire. And the message wasn't some esoteric religious concept, but a counter-narrative to the empire of Rome. John Howard Yoder, in a book that changed my life when I was in, in grad school, um, called The Politics of Jesus, said this. The ministry, I, I forgot to write it up here, but he said, I'll just read it. The ministry and the claims of Jesus are best understood as presenting to hearers and readers not the avoidance of political options, but one particular social, political, ethical option. The word politics comes from the Greek word politikos, meaning of, for, or relating to polis. Does anyone know what the Greek word polis means? City. city. So of, for, or relating to the city. Interestingly enough, going back to the Old Testament real quick, Jeremiah 29.7, the people of Israel, this people who had been oppressed, are in, I've shared this many times when I've taught before, some of you might have heard me say it, use this verse before, but they're in captivity by the Babylonians, this great empire, and they're in captivity. And the prophet Jeremiah, a prophet of Israel, tells them this, promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because your future depends on its welfare. They're in exile as an oppressed people, and they're being told to be political, to care about what is going on in the city around them, and to care for it. Politics happens whenever we bring people together. So in this series that we're beginning tonight, we are going to explore the stark contrast between the structures and systems that exists within our culture and society. Many of the ones in which you name tonight are some of the ones that we are going to explore this quarter. And myself, as well as other staff members, are going to lead those conversations. They're not all going to be structured like tonight. Um, so some of them will be more discussion-based. But the whole point of them is to really get us thinking about how we respond to the world in which we live. Uh, because I believe that we, as followers of Jesus, if we claim that, uh, that these things matter and that we need to care about them. Um, politics are how we as human beings living in community with others structure our lives together as a, soci as a society. And it matters profoundly. Um, so we're going to spend time talking about how these millennial old writings about this ancient tribe and the life and teachings of Jesus how they challenge our thinking, um, how they call into questions the systems that we are currently a part of that we might have mixed feelings about. Because again, we have all benefited from the systems that we are a part of. And there's some really good things about the systems that we are within. But I also think there are some really dangerous things about the systems that we find ourselves in. And we need to call those out and say, what does it mean to be someone living within them? Any final thoughts for the, for the masses? 
we're just getting started. Totally. I think there's a lot of good conversations and themes to come. Yeah. If you want to hear this uh, stuff when it happens, Saturdays at 5, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about this all quarter. We had a week on the end of the end times. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a week on what does second wave feminism have to do with how we think about changing systems? Mm-hmm. Do we change systems from within and say, oh, we're going to we're going to join what's going on here and create change? Or do we need revolution and what's what's good and what's bad and what's kind of in between about both those and um yeah yeah sermon on the mount tomorrow. sermon on the mount tomorrow which will be because of the way the internet works in the past <laughs> when this is done so you'll you can look forward to that um become a volunteer 